Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Cam and Rue Start a Book Club. Rue, third time's a charm. This is our third episode. Yes, I'm excited. (laughs) So this week, we are back to talk with you, or this month, I should say. This month, we are back to talk with you about The Pool of the Stars, a novel by Emma Donahue. There are a lot of thoughts to share on this book in particular, but as always, we have some brief housekeeping to talk about. Um, Always want to introduce our next book, which will be The Postscript Murders by Ellie Griffiths. Um, We've got a quick description for you here that reads, The death of elderly Peggy Smith in Shoreham by Sea, England looks unremarkable on the surface, but her devoted associates, home healthcare worker Natalia, cafe owner and ex-monk Benedict, and former broadcaster Edwin, suspect foul play when they find mystery novels dedicated to Peggy, references to her as a murder consultant, and a postcard with a disturbing note that has been sent to the novelist as well. Which just sounds like a fun, kind of cozy murder mystery that seems like it's just right up our alleys, and I'm really excited to read that book and kind of get into the themes of that book with you, Rue. Me too. It's it's exciting to think about this change in type of book that we're going to. Yeah, I think some of the books that we've been reading, I'm really excited that we've had the opportunity to read them together. They're definitely not books that I immediately have ever thought I would read with you. So that's been fun and interesting to discuss each theme, each kind of book and the challenges that come with those subjects. Mm-hmm. That's been really cool. This book is obviously talking about the pandemic before this one. Um, I think that was just really interesting to kind of dive into and start thinking about. I think there are a lot of directions that we could go in terms of this book. Um, But before we kind of get into what the book is and the themes of the book and and what stuck out to us, um, you know, we should probably kind of quickly talk about, Rue, that you lived with me throughout the pandemic temporarily. So you had moved in with me before the pandemic while you were selling one home and preparing to find a new home here where we live now, Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And so you had moved in with me, which is always an interesting, I think kind of sometimes comical situation for a parent to move in with their child, their adult child, because you've been away from each other for so long. I was completely comfortable with it. (laughs) Food was good. (laughs) But it's, I'm sure it's interesting to see your child as an adult and kind of see what I thought was kind of cool about the experience was you got to see how I lived my life, which I don't always feel like parents get a day-to-day glimpse of like you. Yeah, you don't. And it's a very comfortable home, cozy. Like I said, the food was always really good. And... You locked me down so that I made it safely through the bulk of the pandemic with you. Yeah, I think that was always on my mind was how do we, I was always nervous that I was doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Not that the pandemic is over, but you have moved out and moved into your new home. So you now have your own home. Um, So we're still being cautious, but while you were living with me, I was particularly nervous all of the time because I was worried I was just doing something wrong and I'm especially grateful to my boyfriend Rohit because he 
very easily could have been like, why are you being so weird about going anywhere or doing anything? But I was just trying to take care of my mom, that you're always worried that you're doing something wrong. And I'm sure there are Americans all over that felt the same way that I did that. Yeah. But it wasn't easy and that just going to the mailbox was something that made them really take pause and worry about. Well, and they... They seemed to think that this flu could actually kill an older person. They were more concerned about older people with underlying conditions, which is what I am. And uh, in the book, it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very, that was that was a stark contrast. It was interesting to read this book and compare it to this pandemic because in some ways there are a lot of similarities, but in other ways we've advanced Um in some way. So the the science of how doctor offices work, how hospitals work, that's gotten better. Not just in dealing with the pandemic, but also with, because this, this was a maternity nurse. She worked mainly with, um, in midwifery with women who are pregnant and expecting their babies just any time. So it's not just in how they dealt with the pandemic, but also in how they dealt with health in general and procedures in the hospital. Yeah, and maybe we should clarify here. So in the Pool of the Stars, um, we are, it's a three-day story where you are following um, a nurse named Julia Powers, um, and you're following her. She's a nurse midwife. You're following her for three days as she takes care of the patients that are under her care. They are plagued by the plague, um, so she is not just a maternity ward. She's a plague maternity ward. Right. And, and they s- call her Sister Julia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very interesting book. So we should probably dive into that now. Um, and I think a great place to start, we've already started, is with the characters. So starting with the most prominent character, Julia Power. So she is turning 30 years old in this book. Uh Part was it part two? It was day two, day two in the book that she turns thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have her temporary assistant, Bridie Sweeney. So Bridie is an orphan at a at a nearby nunnery. It was like a poorhouse or a workhouse that the nuns ran, and they weren't they didn't treat people very well. Mm-hmm. But they've sent. Bridey over to um, the hospital to volunteer to help. They're obviously, as with any pandemic, any hospital, they need help. Um, they needed extra hands. And so Bridey gets roped into maybe voluntold. It's not really clear how she gets there, but she gets there. Um, something that really stands out to me about Bridey in particular is just the gratitude that she brings to life. I think that was something that Julia really reflects on throughout the story and it's something that stands out to her as well is that Bridie comes from what's very clearly low expectations lower class doesn't really have any kind of money or safety system um, but lives each day with a sense of gratitude and is excited to get up and find breakfast breakfast is something to celebrate for her probably because she's not getting it Mm -hmm. (laughs) often well and she's highly intelligent yeah so she may not have been properly schooled, but she, she was, was curious. easy to teach. And 
so thankful for any little thing, even that so-called tea that they serve. <laughs> so they are in Ireland, and tea is a big part of their culture because they come from a British society. Um, and throughout the book, they constantly talk about how, well, Julia constantly reflects on how bad this tea is. It's just not up to par. But Bridie drinks that like it is just the best tea she's ever had. It probably is the best tea she's ever had. In the arrowroot biscuits. But the tea, <laughs> let's be clear, they say it is made from wood chips and ash. <laughs> that is not tea. I take personal offense to the, her description of the biscuits, though, because I cook with arrowroot. <laughs> <laughs> arrowroot can be good. That was not the fault of the arrowroot. <laughs> Um, but Bridie also sticks out to me because she brings a lot of sympathy to the characters around her. There's one in particular that stands out to me, but we're not quite ready for him. Um, but Bridie does bring a sense of curiosity, not just about what's happening around her, but the people around her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think living in this pandemic, that's something I feel is really lacking from a lot of situations. Just everyday work um, or just being out Grocery shopping, there's a, at least in our society, it feels like there's a very self-centered, individualistic viewpoint, and we are lacking sympathy in a lot of our situations today. Um, So Bridie stood out to me in that she brought so much sympathy to those around her. I think a pandemic fosters more of a caring attitude in people reaching out to help others like you did through the lockdown and like you delivered groceries to people so they didn't have to go out because you were already going out. So pandemic tends to do that. Yeah. But I didn't get that sense in this book Yeah. that that was happening here. They were all horribly afraid of getting near anybody. And Bridie was empathetic with every woman in that hospital room. Yeah. And and with everybody, really, the orderlies, everybody. Yeah, that really stood out to me. Another prominent character is Dr. Kathleen Lynn, and we should note she's prominent for more than one reason. She was a real historical figure. Yep, and she was really a rebel in the cause (laughs) against Britain's rule. Um, She was... she. I looked her up because she made such an impact on me in the story mm-hmm. and discovered that, yep, this part's true. Yeah. And so is the pandemic happening right at the end of World War One. Yeah. She was a really interesting figure. I looked her up as well, and, and there's just a lot of information about her outreach to her community. Mm-hmm. She clearly believed in making Ireland its own country, that they were their own people, and Ireland, historically, I feel really gets the short end of the stick in life. It feels like a country that often gets forgotten and is more used than it is appreciated. Um, And that came through clear with Dr. Lynn. Yeah, she established um, like a a clinic. A free clinic. She she had a free clinic. Yeah, and she actually did that. That, That's part of the true part of the story. Yeah. Um, let's see. And then we have several, we have four patients that stand out in particular throughout the book. The first one we meet is Ita Noonan. She has the influenza. She has, a, is it her left leg 
that is huge and cold, and it's Mm -hmm. been that way since the previous pregnancy. And she is now in there with her 12th pregnancy. And she, they have this refrain in the book about, you don't love me until you give me 12 children, which is insane. (laughs) But the idea is that a woman doesn't love her husband until she gives him 12 children. Right. I think that was an interesting concept. I think, um, obviously, coming from a Catholic society, we remember Catholic families in the past as being staunchly against any kind of birth control. Yeah, no contraceptives. And so that was a big theme throughout the book. That was interesting. Um, But Ita, she has the influenza. She's not doing well. She's pregnant. Obviously, she's in this maternity ward. Um, She's in, um, she's delirious. She's delirious. That's the thing that stands out the most to me is that she has no cognition and they mostly ignore her when she talks to them because Mm -hmm. it's gibberish. It doesn't make sense with what's going on in the room. Then we have um, Delia Garrett. I didn't like her. She was rich and pampered and demanding and I didn't like her at all at first. Yeah. But I got to like her a little better by the end of things. Yeah, I think what stands out to me about Delia, and probably the reason you started to like her, is that she does have empathy for the women in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she widely covers that with the making the situation about herself. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of people do, I think, to kind of protect their own feelings and um safeguard themselves but she does express empathy not just sympathy she expresses empathy for the other women in the room yes she does and she goes through a very tough difficult birthing process so she's one of the things about this book that just got me was the different ways that the births happened yeah and this nurse had to deal with this on her own she Mm -hmm. had a overseeing nurse above her that worked with her in that room but she was absent the whole three days (laughs) and she she had one crisis after another yeah the whole three days yeah and she had to run through an encyclopedia in her head of all the different ways to give birth and what she needed to do to ensure that birth took place and even when birth ended in death either for the parent or for the mother or the child she had to be running through those possibilities and sometimes those realities as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mary O'Rahili is another patient that stands out, particularly because she's 17, so she's a first-time mother. Um, This is her first pregnancy, and um, she stands out because not just of her age, but throughout the book she makes comments that her husband is abusive. She doesn't state it obliquely, but... She's bruised, and she's that when they ask her about it, she gives an excuse for it that's obviously not true. They put the pieces together yeah. and realize that she's being abused. But her innocence in all of it, mm-hmm. she thought her baby would come out of her <laughs> belly button. That was the most interesting part of the book in itself, where we start to talk about the lack of education, about not just how to give birth, but I think probably sex in general. And that's a theme that we see even today in our society. That's a struggle that our society has even now, that struggle between 
sometimes it's a religious morality and being honest about what sex is and how sex happens and the consequences or the benefits of sex, which depend on your situation, Mm -hmm. but what, how well educated you are about what it means to have sex and what can happen from that. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a big, a big theme throughout the book. And they're obviously not well educated about that. The patients are. (laughs) And then the last patient that really stands out to me is Honor White. Um, which I don't know how much of Honor's story we should give away. She Didn't she come from that um, nun's poorhouse too? Yeah, I, I think Honor res, is a symbol for a big theme in the book, which is a sense of mistrust for organized religion. Honor is a byproduct of organized religion gone wrong. Mm-hmm. She has a ton of religious morality issues that she struggles with. She is an unmarried mother. Twice over. Twice over. This is not her first birth. And they look down on her. The mm-hmm. nurse, the sisters, the nuns look down on her. For that. Yeah. Despite the fact that she spends all of her time after the first birth volunteering, not volunteering, they put her in servitude. Mm-hmm. So in order to pay, I'm putting that in quotes, to pay for the expenses of her birth and taking care of her and her child at the nunnery. Mm-hmm. The poorhouse. <laughs> the poorhouse. Um, <laughs> they put her in servitude. And so she's working to she's working to pay that that off physically, but she's also in some sense there to pay off to pay a moral tax as well. Well, I got the sense that this was not the result of a relationship. I got the sense that someone abused her hmm. more than once, hmm. which is how she ended up pregnant. Well, and then the last two characters that really stand out to me are Groin, yes. who's an orderly. He's a male orderly that we see quite a bit interacting with the maternity ward. I didn't like him at all for most <laughs> of the book. Yeah. Or at least two days of the story. I didn't like him at yeah. all. Friday changed my mind. Yeah, so Groin definitely, I think, is what you would think of as a stereotypical kind of privileged male in his society. So for him, that means that he has many of the benefits of being a man in the Irish culture at that point in time. Um, he sees himself as a first-class citizen. He sees his sex as first-class citizens and everyone else is kind of there for them and their uh, entertainment. And so he spends a lot of his time in that hospital singing, um, and that irritates Julia to no end, the Mm. songs that he sings. And the fact that he gossiped so much, and he was spreading rumors about Dr. Lynn. She hadn't even met this woman Mm. yet, and Mm -hmm. she was dependent on her for help in these circumstances. I think that's something we haven't mentioned. So Dr. Lynn is new to the hospital. So mm-hmm. that comes with its own gossip. Anytime I think you're in a an urgent kind of workplace or there's a lot of dependence on trust in order to work together when you're in that kind of high stakes environment, there's a lot of gossip that comes in that. I've experienced that in my own life, <laughs> just working in 
student affairs or residential life when I was a, a college student that helped me pay for college and and those kinds of environments where you're responding to emergency situations, I just know firsthand that that breeds a lot of gossip. Well, and one other thing with Julia's hands were pretty much tied. She couldn't give medicine without a doctor say so. You couldn't hardly get a doctor down to that room. She kept sending Bridie out to find one. And Dr. Lynn gave her permission to do different things on her own yeah. power. Yeah, so Dr. Lynn definitely was a protagonist in the book um, someone good for the story and good for the people around her and I think that's largely how history seems to remember her as well groin greets her with suspicion but I also imagine that Emma the author used groin to showcase how Irish culture at that point probably received Dr. Lynn so I read his character as the average reception to Dr. Lin. Mm -hmm. Okay, but there's one more character we haven't talked about. Sister Luke. <laughs> Sister Luke. Uh-huh. I didn't much like Sister Luke either. She she looked down on Honor White. Um, she was very rule-bound and critical yeah. of people. I think that um, the author, Emma, really used Sister Luke. In my view... She was a symbol for what was wrong or what can be wrong with organized religion. Mm -hmm. So Sister Luke is not a sister or does not seem to be a sister out of a sense of charity or servitude. Not there to serve the people around her, but more as a means to survive and to have power around the people around her as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is maybe something... That is a sign of the times, though, too, because as we've gotten to a point in our world where you do live longer and the cons the health concerns that we face are different than the ones we faced then or even a century ago or two centuries ago, um, I think the idea that we have more free time, <laughs> we have more trivial things to worry about versus okay how am I actually going to how am I actually going to survive the day and make ends meet some people really do still obviously struggle with that kind of situation but our whole world doesn't and so our society is in many ways better off than it was back then and so I think something that comes out of that is that our religion perhaps becomes more focused um, it's kind of like when you read those articles about people talking about the future job and how people can be more focused on arts because the infrastructure component has been taken care of. Obviously, we're still having that argument today, but <laughs> <laughs> but the idea being the more free time you have, the more you can really focus on what makes you happy and the artistic side of life. And so in this case, religion then at that point in time really may have been a means for life. It may have been a way to survive versus the more altruistic components that a free society, a more playful society may be able to spend its time mm -hmm. focusing on. One other person was uh, Julia's brother. What was his name? Ted. Ted. Wasn't it Ted? Teddy? Ted. Uh... Obviously, he made an impression. 
Well, he did because he came <laughs> back from the war and he couldn't speak. Mm-hmm. And she had thought that that was psychosomatic because there was nothing physically wrong with him. But it might have been PTSD related. And he loved his sister. He took care of, he did have a job and he took care of the home and cooked for her. He made her birthday special too. Tim. Tim. He wasn't a big part of the story each day, but he was a big part of her life. So that really takes us into the themes which we've we've started to kind of dabble in. Um, The first one being obviously the Spanish flu, the 1918 influenza pandemic. Mm -hmm. One thing I think we should bring out is about the flu itself at that time. World War I lasted from July 28th 1914 until November 11th, 1918. The Spanish flu lasted from February of 1918 until April of 1920. So the fact of the war aided in in spreading the flu and in it mutating as well as it did because troops were moving around and they were not knowledgeable about containment or social distancing. People were crammed on these trams going back and forth and they knew they didn't want anybody spitting around them or coughing on them or Mm -hmm. things like that, but they didn't stay six feet apart like we're told to during this pandemic. Yeah. But this flu infected 500 million people in four waves and killed one earth one-third of the Earth's population, and the higher-than-expected mortality of young adults. Which is interesting that this is a flu that we still deal with today and largely kind of view as a trivial, something that we don't worry about as much anymore. Yeah, but when you read the symptoms in this book, I was horrified by the symptoms and how they died from flu. You know, I had no idea it was as bad as it was. But some Americans do still experience those people around the world today still do experience those symptoms and Mm -hmm. die from them. They're just not as common. Um, It's called the Spanish flu because because there was a war going on, the countries involved in the war repressed reporting of the flu. Mm -hmm. They downplayed it. Yeah. Spain was not involved in that war, and they reported it freely. So then it was called Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in how that came about. (laughs) So we've gotten some history there. (laughs) Um, There's definitely a sense of urgency to this book. We've already said that it takes place across three days. The book itself is split into four parts, and I found that really made for a quick read. Um, not only because every chapter is kind of, oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? Um, One crisis after another. Yeah, there, it, it's a very fast-paced book um, in subject and material. And the four parts are red, brown, blue, black. Mm-hmm. And those signify the color of skin as you progress with this disease. Black being you're dead. Or about to die. So I thought that was maybe some interesting symbolism there. You could say that that 
either relates to Julia's professional life or her personal life. She clearly was going through a metamorphosis throughout this book. And so were those the stages of her professional career? Were they the stages of her personal life? I'm not sure. Well, she was looking at it, at her patients. She saw those colors in her patients Mm -hmm. as the disease progressed. That's how I took it. Mm. At the end of the book, she's viewing her career and the choices she's made in her life very differently than at the start. Yep. That she's gone through four stages, <laughs> four parts, and they have each dramatically left her changed. Well, and the people she met did too. Mm-hmm. So One odd thing that she did is when she would lose a patient, she had a little metal, mm. was it a watch? Yeah. And she'd take a nail out of the wall and scratch a mark when she would lose a patient. And she had a lot of marks on her watch. And Bridie saw her do it. And Bridie did it for her once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think she did that. Um, She said she did that to remember them and to mark that death. um, Because she wasn't always sure that other people would remember the death took place. Mm -hmm. I also think she did that for a sense of timekeeping. I think that really helped her keep track of how long she had been working. Um, I think from my own experience, when you're working really long hours and you don't have a lot of time to think about free time, um, you do lose track of, well, how long have I been doing this? And so to me, it felt like she was, she was doing it for a sense of, of keeping a toe in time and in reality of Mm -hmm. like what's happening. Yeah, she did work really long hours, and then she had a trip to get from the hospital back home. First yeah. part, she would do on a bicycle because her boss didn't want her riding a bicycle all the way to the hospital. <laughs> so she, at one point, locked their bike up and get on the tram with all these people who were coughing and spitting and hacking. Mm-hmm. It made no sense to me. <laughs> what was unladylike to ride a bicycle? Well... <laughs> <laughs> You can be a lady and die from a flu. Mm. Well, we haven't always applied logic like that to our gender rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's see. Another, I mean, obviously from the pandemic, we have several little themes. Um, science and superstition really played out throughout the book. Um, so we see some parallels with today where people seek out I think people seek out during a pandemic, they seek out natural solutions. Mm -hmm. And that's a way for them to feel some sense of control over what's happening. I think if you feel like you have some sort of talisman or secret that keeps you safe, that inherently just makes you feel better. And so for them at that time, their government had a lot of propaganda that took those superstitions and made them published and tried mm-hmm. to push them onto the society. So whether that was eating onions or wearing the color red, at the end of the day, those didn't have any scientific weight, right? But it was right. something that they could, and that's the purpose of propaganda, I guess, is to make you feel like you're doing your part. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we still... I think that's just something that comes naturally from a pandemic for any society, that you have to make a sense of each person's duty. I don't know if I would have connected with that 
in this book had I not gone through a pandemic, but there is a sense of if you're a citizen in our society, you have to do your part, Mm -hmm. that you have a part to play and you are as much a part of the solution as you can be the problem. Like getting vaccinated, which promotes herd immunity Mm -hmm. and keeps the mutations down, things like that, yeah. Yeah. Or wearing your mask. I think that was mm-hmm. that was interesting to see them deal with masks throughout this book. And I think that frustrated me in a lot of ways because masks are still something. I mean, you would think that masks were new. Yeah. In this pandemic. I was shocked. I, I looked this first pandemic up when this one started mm-hmm. and I saw people, pictures of people wearing masks. Mm-hmm everywhere they went so yeah I think I hadn't I didn't realize that I think that's something that really frustrated me while reading this book is that it didn't when I read this and then did my own research to look into the Spanish flu um, it didn't feel like our society our world had learned very much right (laughs) so in this book they do talk about mass and I should probably mention that Emma wrote this book before the, the this existing pandemic. So she had started this book, I think, in 2018 mm-hmm. um, when she was ready to publish our existing pandemic was occurring. Um, and so it just became very timely for what was happening in the world. And it's gained interest from that. But I think that's just something that really frustrated me was that they're dealing with a lot of the same why you should wear a mask and what does a mask really do and and people challenging does that actually help you does it not help you i think that was that was weird to see mm-hmm. because it doesn't feel like we remember as a world having to do that during the spanish flu yeah i had no idea yeah until i looked it up yeah i think i just think that's part of that continued conversation about you are a citizen in, in our world and you have a part to play in the pandemic. And and they had people very much against wearing the mask mm-hmm. back then too. Just like today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. So today, Rue, we live in a world where our CDC has come forward and said that if you're fully vaccinated, which you are, you no longer have to wear a mask indoors which is weird to say. I wasn't really sure that we would get there this year. Um, I'm not completely sure I trust that. I think Joseph thinks it might be a carrot to get people to get vaccinated mm-hmm. because they didn't reach the full potential of vaccinated people what yeah. they wanted. So if they tell you you're fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask indoors, then maybe people will want to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And that's what he thinks is going on. Yeah, I think there is something to that. There is, you do have to let some people that are skeptical about the vaccine know that there are benefits to taking the vaccine. Obviously, there are risks with any vaccine. And one of the risks with this vaccine is that you can still get COVID, that mm-hmm. you could still be infected. It's it's rare. It's come through rare in their scientific studies but, but it is possible. Uh, doesn't it lessen the effect? Yeah, if you contract COVID-19, the vaccinations are shown statistically to help lessen the consequences. Um, but yeah, I'm with you. I think that's something I would be a little hesitant about. I know that I'm still wearing my mask. Mm, I am too. I just think it's interesting 
when I look back at the last year, I know that I personally have had less illnesses, Mm -hmm. but I think that also comes from not interacting with as many people, not going to as many places, not touching as many things. So, I mean, I, I understand that it can be hard statistically to show or bear out the positives of wearing a mask. At the end of the day, it just was interesting and sometimes frustrating to me to read as if this story were taking place today when it came to things like wearing masks. Um, That really surprised me that, and I guess it shouldn't that they had some of the same struggles that our society deals with Mm -hmm. today. We didn't learn. Yeah, that's, that's really the overwhelming message that kind of plagued me throughout reading this book is that we haven't learned many lessons and that history really does repeat itself, unfortunately. Yeah, they went through social distancing, closing schools, theaters, churches, just like today, limiting mass gatherings just like today. And I remember when it first we first had lockdown going on here, the police were around here running people off, mm-hmm. telling them to go home. Downtown, people, the yep. police were putting up barricades and telling people to go home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Interesting. You know, one reason that Bridie really stands out to me is that I think when you are living in a pandemic, you really do have to live your life with some sympathy and empathy for those around you and even the people you don't know. Um, because you can really impact someone's day in, in a negative way, in a health way. Um, mm-hmm. you, can, you can really send someone off course. And I think that's just weird to think about. It's not something that we're constantly asked to think about. And that's obviously happening when we, when we don't live in a pandemic, that our germs are cross-contaminating with other people's germs. It just means more when you're living with a in in a pandemic you know what's needed even outside of a pandemic Mm -hmm. but what actually happens with people is you have a crisis and you all come together for a little while and then it's back to normal yeah I think um something that I keep reflecting on while I'm running I do a lot of thinking while I'm running that's my favorite time to kind of reflect on how things are going for me or in the world um is that there for a long time it felt like our countries, our world was moving towards a me, 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 me kind of feeling in society where we were looking to put up boundaries between each other um, to make other people different, other countries different, to say no to refugees, to say this is my culture and I'm proud of it and it's the highlight for me and then you go through a pandemic where you really do rely on the rest of the world to help you know Rohit my boyfriend is Indian his family's Indian they're not doing well right now and it's interesting living in America where a we were probably better prepared than any other country for a pandemic, and we still struggled. We still struggle. Yeah, we were sort of prepared, but we actually weren't. We had the infrastructure to be prepared. Yeah. We were not prepared. We didn't have the leadership. So I think that was something, that's something that is odd to me to think about in itself, that we were one of the best prepared countries, if not the best prepared country, the most able 
when you think about a country that can tell its citizens to work from home, we're the, we're the most able, equipped to actually make that happen for the majority of the country. Um, we're in a much better place than a lot of countries. And then to have our citizens take some of those abilities for granted and then look at someone like Rohit, who is struggling with the situation that he sees in India. It's horrible right now in India. And the fact that struck me about it is that they thought they were in a good place, and now they're in a horrible place. And how did that happen? Well, part of it is leadership or lack of. They didn't go far enough to protect themselves, just like we didn't go far enough to protect ourselves. I think this whole pandemic could be shortened if we all did what we were we needed to do. Well, I do think there's something there about when you are living in a pandemic, you're, you are no longer just a citizen of your country. You're a world citizen. And mm-hmm. I think that's what I'm thinking about when I'm trying to think about what have I really learned out of this is that a pandemic really sheds light on the fact that you live in a world with everybody else and what you do really can trouble or impact or help anyone in the world. I think that's a big lesson for me from this. But what's been hard to watch is living in an American society where we often take just regular every day for granted. But to take our situation today, which is not always great, and it's not great for a lot of people in the U.S. in terms of the pandemic. There are a lot of people that still struggle. There are a lot of classes that struggle. There are a lot of ethnicities that particularly are plighted. But to see people take for granted the benefits that come from being in America right now and then look at Rohit's situation, look at India. I don't know, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre to live here and think about that life because mm-hmm. I think for a lot of people, it's easy to forget about that. Well, I was I was glad to hear that our government was stepping up to send things over there to help oxygen and everything they needed. We were stepping up to send it over there. I don't know how that played out with distribution issues, but, you know, I don't watch the news. But I was glad to see that they were taking it seriously. We should say you don't watch the news because you don't like the constant negativity. It bothers you. That's right. Mm -hmm. The emphasis on I'm retired. I want to have a happy day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was really shocking to me. To learn what was going on in India, especially when I know Rohit, and I know he's got family members over there, and it just yeah, I think that is is what's really um, on my mind during this time and during this book is that for many Americans, our situation is not as dire. It could have been and much worse for many people. It was. For me, it wasn't, and for a lot of the people I know, it wasn't, and I'm thankful for that. But it is odd to live today in America and think about how hard it must be to be in India right now or to be in any country like that 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 is just really plighted by that, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just odd. It's bizarre. Well, I started out the pandemic very fearful. 
I just knew I was going to die from this. And the fact that I have lived through this without even getting sick is down to you and Joseph. That's something I was really worried about as well. And it's just, I'm very thankful that you're here. And I think I'm very thankful for the time that we had together while you were living here with me. I think that's not something that children always get with their parents is to live with them as adults and to spend that kind of time together. That was that was a lot of good quality time that we mm-hmm. were able to spend together. I was constantly worried <laughs> and it was hard to relax, but it is time that I'll always remember. Well, in the very first three months of it, I was working very long hours and suffering the consequences of that. Mm-hmm. So once I decided to retire, things got easier. You've had an interesting year. I did. <laughs> you moved in with your adult son, you retired, and you lived during a pandemic. And I sold my home. You sold your home. And helped Joseph buy a new home. Joseph's my brother. And moved in with Joseph. <laughs> moved my brother with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's been... A lot of big changes. A lot of big changes for you. Yeah. Well, let's move on to a different theme before we depress ourselves. <laughs> Too much. One theme that really still stands out to me and we've kind of touched on is just sex and reproductive education. This society in particular in the book really doesn't know much. And you do kind of wonder, does that is that because of their Catholic upbringing that contraception is not as it's downplayed and it's seen as bad for them? It's immoral. So do they not? seek out education about sex and does that come from religion there's a lot of different areas you could think about that but at the end of the day the characters in this book just don't seem to know very much um unless they are in the medical field and so julia obviously knows quite a bit one part of this book that was just very in some ways humorous but is also horrifying to think about is one of the patients mary O'Rahili, who believes that the her baby is going to actually come out of her belly button. And horrified when they showed her the picture of true thing. Oh, that's true. That is true. (laughs) then she saw the other birth happen (laughs) while she's having labor pains. (laughs) But this is one of those moments that makes you think about, at least for me and the people my age, when you were in middle school and you had to go through at least one class that talked about reproductive health, and you had to watch a video of birth taking place. And I remember a lot of kids being like, oh my gosh, I was shocked. I know they were shocked. So, it- Well, when I was growing up, you didn't get videos <laughs> like that. The first time I saw one was in Lama's class when I was pregnant with Joseph. And after watching that, I told your father, okay, I'm done being pregnant now. So you were married. Yes. Hmm. Did I you, had no clue. <laughs> did you think it was going to come out of your belly no, button? No, okay. it's not that you, uneducated. Mother you, did tell me something. You did know something. I just didn't know what labor was like or yeah. birthing was like. I think that was interesting. We've kind of already talked about this, but all the different ways that you can get birth and the, and the means that the medical field can help that along, that was interesting to see Julia think about that in each situation, whether it was going to be a natural birth, a forced birth, 
Um, yeah, she talked about um, those clamps. Clamp under the baby and pull the hmm. baby out. That's just horrifying. Yeah. And really, I've always thought about the different things that could go wrong with pregnancy. And back then, in 1918, it was very real that you could die in yeah. childbirth. I think that's something I think about a lot today. I have a lot of female friends that are at the age of, if not giving birth to their first child, their second. I think about some of the struggles that they're dealing with. And <laughs> sometimes I just wonder, gosh, like, what did what did women do before advanced medicine well, science. I had some pretty odd things happen to me with pregnancies, too, mm -hmm. that I didn't know could happen. Mm -hmm. I remember talking to one of my best friends, Amber. We grew up together. She recently gave birth to her first child, and I've had a lot of conversations with her about how there are things that happen when you're giving birth that women don't talk to one another about. And so mm -hmm. she was just kind of like, gosh, Cam, like, I just didn't know this, or I wish I had known that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I sometimes just think that comes out of our very kind of rigid gender norming society where those things aren't viewed as polite to talk about, but they are natural, that they are part of your human body, but we downplay them because we don't see it as reasonable or ladylike or appropriate but you don't want to scare a new mother who hasn't had a baby yet and she doesn't want to hear a bunch of horror stories <laughs> <laughs> but you do you do need to level set though and put some realism there just like mary who thinks a baby's coming out of her belly button oh yeah that was ridiculous <laughs> I mean, I do think out of our society, some of the things that we believe or don't believe or don't educate our children about today just come from old old practices, old moral beliefs of it's just not viewed as appropriate or it's viewed as taboo. Mm -hmm. And those are just, it's silly to me because you're going to go through that. You should be talking about that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Hmm. I had no idea the things that happened to me were could even happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I do have to say, I personally have been scarred by this book. I will never eat an orange again without thinking about this book or giving birth. Because there is a part in the book where Julia is talking about removing the afterbirth from one of her patients, and I haven't ever really thought much about afterbirth. I haven't had to in our society as a man, so I haven't really been forced to think about this. Um, but in this book, it's obviously comes up as a, a big component, and mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much of that is due to the times or if this is still a really risky part of giving birth, but Julia is dealing with a patient whose afterbirth isn't coming out, and she talks briefly or reflects briefly. A lot of the book is her thought process. Um, so she's reflecting on how do you remove the afterbirth? And she remembers doing this on an orange, like removing the skin <laughs> from an orange, the mm -hmm. peel. That has just changed me and the way that I eat oranges and I'm scarred. Not me. I love oranges. <laughs> 
I don't even think about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm. Mm. Well, I think this leads us into a, another appropriate theme here, um, which is just the idea of feminism and women's rights. This is a particular theme that keeps coming up in the books that we read, which is just very interesting. Um, this in particular, I think, leads us to the idea of the blood tax. And this comes from Groin, the orderly, the male orderly, um, who throughout most of the book is a privileged male who doesn't always see that the people around him are struggling, doesn't see the plight that women are going through. And he refers to men being rightful first-class citizens, the ones that deserve a vote in the society because they pay a blood tax. They are the ones fighting the war. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting for many reasons. A, he's talking to a woman who works in the medical field, who at this time, a lot of women are having to deal with the aftermath of war. They're They've given up their families because the men in their lives have gone off to fight. Mm -hmm. And they're physically taking care of the men that return. Mm -hmm. um, but also this comes at a point in the book after a miscarriage, I believe. Mm -hmm. A stillborn. Still a stillbirth. Mm -hmm. um, and so Julia responds to this with a sense of, irony he has the audacity to come into that room and, and talk to these women about a blood tax and she kind of responds to him in a way that women pay a blood tax mm -hmm. for their society that society would not exist without the blood that they pay to give birth mm -hmm. and then I think from this subject about women's rights I think there's obviously a lot of reflection on what it means to be a mother in this book and good or bad and whether these women are ready to be parents and what kind of parents they'll be and what that really means for their lives. And there's a lot of reflection on who they were before they were pregnant and the freedom that they may have had before they were pregnant. Um, the expectations that come from being a, not just a, a pregnant woman, but a mother. Um, I think that was really interesting. That was a, a big part of the book. That's mm -hmm. a lot of Julia's reflection. Um, and I'm a big proponent that mothers are humans too. You know, Rue, I call you Rue, not mom. And that's something that I've done for a long time. Yeah, ever since you were a teenager. <laughs> it's not something that you've Irritated always... <laughs> me most of the time. <laughs> not something you always loved. Nope. <laughs> but it was something, I don't know, for me... I think it's a sign of respect in some ways, which I don't think our society always views. And that's not something you not always... You're not just a mom. Mm -hmm. You're not just a mom. So I think one day I talked to you about how irritated I would be if I were a parent and my child never realized that I existed before them and they constantly or just didn't even know what my name was. That would really irritate me. <laughs> um, but also, you know, I think that came from me wanting to really set a boundary between the two of us. I've talked to you about how it is not easy to grow up as an as a gay person and to find your own identity, whether you're accepted or you're not accepted or what fears you have about being accepted. And for me, it was important to put a boundary between the two of us as two adults. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where that comes from for me. And um, I don't know, I think that 
that's just a theme that I'm a big proponent of, that mothers are humans too, and, and that you can exist beyond just being a parent, mm-hmm. after being a parent. Well, a lot of kids don't even think about that. It's just mom. Yeah. They don't think about what mom likes or dislikes or may have done in youth or anything like that. It's just mom. (laughs) Sometimes I talk to Rohit and I'll ask him questions about his parents and he will be horrified that I will have even asked those questions. Like I think one time I asked him if he thought his parents had ever kissed anyone else before (laughs) each other. And he was like, no, why would they do that? (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) But then I'll talk to him about the questions that I ask you and I've always asked you. And I think that also equally horrifies him that you and I would have kind of the conversations that we do have. Mm-hmm. But I think they interest him and I think um, they give him food for thought about things he might talk to his parents about too. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. So um, I think the last thing for me, and it's one that we've kind of talked on a lot already is just the idea of mistrust of organized religion. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think Emma really puts this forward as a concrete campaign. No, she doesn't. I do think that there is a strong narrative in the book that organized religion can be troublesome, but it doesn't feel like she's attacking religion. No. Um, and I do think a lot of readers will appreciate that. But there, there is the idea of mistrust and organized religion in this book. And that's something that resonates with me as the kind of person that I am. It's something that I've always walked through life with a curiosity about. Um, well, Sister Luke was definitely judgmental mm-hmm. and critical. Um, and she represents religion in the fact she sent Bridie in there as a volunteer from the poorhouse. And also the fact that the whole idea of Catholics and their view of contraception and these women going through multiple births and what a a toll it takes on their bodies, Mm -hmm. especially during a pandemic. Yeah, I think um, it does kind of make you think about um, the... Expectations that religion can have on women in any society and the consequences of that and how that can be unfair. Um, it's not just Catholicism. No. Religion in general. Yeah. We don't always get it right. Yeah. Mostly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think this is not like a concrete campaign. This is not something the author really went out of her way to challenge or really make the reader think too much on and I say that mostly because it's a it's not a presentation of both sides this is you're kind of seeing it through the eyes of the character and I think it's meant to be left at just that she's not trying to campaign for you to feel a certain way if you leave with questions in one way or the other that's your interpretation of the reading I think but I do think it's worth noting that it comes up in the book that these characters are challenged by the religion that surrounds them Mm -hmm. in many different ways. Yes. Yeah. Um, Other thing is the style of the writing. Well, before we get there, there's one last theme 
LGBTQIA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I felt like that kind of snuck in at the end of the, of the book. And in the third day, I thought people don't get that far in a relationship in three days. Mm-hmm. But that could be just me. Right. So you may be giving a little too much away there, but what we will say. So toward the end of the book, one of the main characters you realize is possibly lesbian or bisexual. It's never really made clear, um, but there is a romantic encounter in the book. And I do think in some ways the reader is surprised by that. I think you're you're meant to. I was. <laughs> you were certainly surprised by that. But I felt like it. She put that in to explain the actions of Sister Julia right at the end. Mm. Mm. And I don't want to say any more because it will give something away. That... Yeah, I think, A, what's interesting to me just as a gay person is that a lot of the books that we've been reading lately have a queer kind of theme in them. That's interesting to me. I think it's become kind of more common and every day to discuss and talk about, and that's encouraging. It was part of the character development for that character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, think, I think that really leads us into our next section, which is really about the author herself. Um, and we usually use this section to kind of talk about what we think about the author's writing style. For me, this is a good lead-in because I, I felt like, I feel like this ties into the the overall conversation about character depth and all of these characters have a lot of depth in them. Something that I think we've kind of forgotten to talk about that we've hinted at is the sympathy that Bridie brings out in the characters around her and Groin, who throughout almost the entirety of the book is someone that I don't think the reader is expected to really He's irritating. He irritates you. So you are meant to be irritated by him. You're not set up to be sympathetic with him or empathetic to him. And Bridie brings that out in you. Um, And I think that speaks well to Emma's ability to just write about these characters in a well-roundedness and and really bring them to life on page. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think there, there is something in the book that seems to so Rue you had looked at previous reviews of the book and something that really seems to also irritate some readers is the fact that Emma the author Emma Donahue doesn't use quotation marks when she's referencing when a character is speaking so you're kind of going in between their thought and their speech patterns and so you kind of as the reader have to piece together when the character is speaking, it is a little jarring at first for me, Mm -hmm. um, but you get used to it. You get acclimated to it Mm -hmm. pretty quickly. You learn to, you learn to tell Julia's voice, whether it's in her head or she's actually speaking versus the other people and when they're speaking. Yeah. I think that is interesting for a lot of reasons. A, in one paragraph, she'll go between thinking and speaking. Um, and you naturally just start to piece that together. So I didn't find that a big challenge. But I mean, I do think you're meant to be uncomfortable in this book. And that, I think, was a physical way for her to make her reader get uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You are not comfortable in a pandemic, especially then. I think we're better off in this pandemic, at least in terms of comfort, 
we're not drinking ash tea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it maybe was an interesting way for her to put the reader off and put some you on the edge. put you on the edge in some degree. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. It was. I've never read a book without the quotation marks. <laughs> it took me a little bit, but I quickly got used to it. We should have looked this up to see if she spoke on it, because how funny would it be if she was like, no, that's just my writing. <laughs> and you and I are like, well, I think she did that to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> I can tell you that in some of the reviews, people just put the book down because they yeah. couldn't handle that. Yeah. But I didn't see that until after I had read the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you get used to it. You yeah, know, you, it's you a really book. You really do get used to it. And I do think at the end of the day, you're not comfortable in a pandemic. And and I think that was maybe something she was trying to hint at. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're reaching, but that that's that's what came through to me. Um, let's see. Overall, I think this was a really fast read and it was a good read. Obviously, this is a book that's gaining a lot of at- of attention right now because of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. People are curious about previous pandemics because we're in a pandemic right now. And that's one of the reasons you and I picked this book up, that we wanted to kind of look back to history and see how people lived their life. And something I really appreciated about this book was that it wasn't there were historical parts to it. There were real historical figures or notes in here, but it's largely fiction. Um, and so I think that really lets you explore different components in a more imaginative way than sometimes life can be. So there's that balance between what's been imagined and, and what actually happened. But I do, you do get a sense that it was well-researched and She's a good storyteller. Yeah. It brought history to life yeah. for me. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. That mm-hmm. it really did bring a historical perspective in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Overall, I thought it was interesting that she split the book up into four parts, but also just three days. That really built on a sense of urgency. It did. The fact that she wasn't sure she was going to make it through the three days. <laughs> <laughs> without any help until Bridie showed up. Yeah. Well, what else should we say about this book? I mean, I definitely... I re- highly recommend people read this book, especially now. Same. Same. Definitely. I think this was an interesting book. It makes you kind of reflect on your own life today going through the pandemic, and it makes you reflect on how you relate to these characters, even not in a pandemic. It just mm-hmm. makes you grateful, I think, for your own situation. And I'll be looking at other books written by Emma Donahue now. Yeah, and I I think overall historical books are a particular interest for me, whether they're fiction or nonfiction. Yeah, me too. This is something that was right up my alley, regardless of having it be related to the pandemic or not. I really enjoy historical Mm -hmm. fiction and nonfiction. So this was was an easy pickup read for me. good book and i'm looking forward to the next one. yeah so that takes us to um conclusions so we've already recommended the book our next book that we're super excited to bring to you guys is the postscript murders by ellie griffiths yeah after leaving the pandemic now we're going to have some fun right because <laughs> right a cozy seaside murder that's fun <laughs> it is 
happens in my world. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it really does seem like a, a fun read. This is a first time read for me for Ellie. Actually, I think this me is too. all of these books are first time read that we've picked out so far. So, I mean, overall, I think, again, I'll just reiterate, I'm really excited about the books that we've picked out um, for this podcast. I think we've got some really exciting stories coming yes Mm -hmm. and i'm excited um, to really bring those forward and rue i don't know if i've mentioned this to you but christopher mcdougall's born to run the book that he wrote before running with sherman um the one that i told you i was interested in reading after reading running with sherman is on sale or at least it it is on sale with the apple iBooks. so i've recently purchased that for a dollar 99 Mm-hmm. I'm stoked about that. So I'll be reading that book in between the rest of our book list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really enjoy his storytelling as well. Yeah, I'm, I, I think we've picked out some really quality books. The last three books that we've um, been reading and talked about or discussed, uh, I've really enjoyed. I have too. Kind of a heavier theme. So it's nice to get into something a little more... I mean, it's murder, but it's written in a lighthearted way. And I really like the main character. Uh-huh. Yep. For this week's or this month's book, The Pool of the Stars, um, I am leaving this book a little more grateful than I was before. It definitely made me reflect on the past year and it made me reflect on our own situation and um, I don't know. Our just... responsibilities to society in general. Yeah. It was an interesting read for sure, and I definitely recommend it. Mm-hmm. I do too. Read The Pull of the Stars by De- Emma Dunning. Definitely read The Pull of the Stars. You won't regret it. Okay, well, I guess we will talk to you guys next month when we're talking about our next book. Don't forget, you can go to uh, my website. I'm Cam Elliott. That's I-M-C-A-M-E-L-L-I-O-T-T dot com slash cam and rue and you'll find that uh, you'll find our full list of books that we've selected um, for the next six episodes including the postscript murders and we're really excited to dive into those we've already started the postscript murders so we're really digging that book it's a great read i'm really excited about it i think it'll be a lot of fun to talk to you guys about and once again we're just so excited about the response that we've received to this podcast we're really excited to even do something like this this has been a lot of fun just to do with you Rue and I'm always thankful that you're part of this with me and very thankful to the community that's been reaching out and responding to us about the episodes me too very cool all right guys well maybe next month I'll have an update on how um, the borough racing team is going I still need to reach out to (laughs) Ricky and Catherine and get get final approval I've already told Rohit that we need to find some donkeys. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for joining us today. Um, We hope you have a great rest of your month, and we'll see you next month. All right. So this is our third episode, and you know what they say, Rue? What? Third time's the charm. Oh, yeah. Did you ever think we would make it to three episodes? No. Did... Yes. <laughs> Rude. Did you... So when you first agreed to do this podcast with me, did you kind of suspect, all right, well, we'll do we'll do one episode and 
maybe we just won't do it again. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So I forced you into a podcast then. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yep. How does that feel? It's good now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here with me. 